Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Liverpool is football journalist and man who has more followers on Twitter than there are people in Luxembourg. It's James Pearce. James, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Sachin. Yeah, how are you? I'm very good. Well, I'm all right. I'm a bit worn down. I was just saying to you before we start recording that... Um, like you, as people, anyone knows, who listens to this podcast knows, I'm a Liverpool fan as well. And um, I set myself a challenge this summer of going to every home game this season, having had a season not going uh, to any games at all, obviously because of COVID. Um, it was a, an exciting challenge in the summer, but it's turned into a slightly brutal one. I shouldn't complain too much because obviously I'm in a very privileged position to be able to go to Anfield and watch watch a team play. But yeah, I was just saying to you off air, we've, we've just finished a run of six out of nine home games. We should say recording this the day after Liverpool's Champions League last 16 settling into Inter Milan so it's, it's it's 24 hours after and that was a sixth of nine home games and uh yeah I found it a slightly exhausting run so I'm slightly worn out but um <laughs> yeah saying to, I mean just saying to you it has felt like a slightly unusual run it has it's been quite stacked obviously there was a rearranged game against Leeds there was a Norwich Cup tie Champions League game among the league games but it's yeah it's been quite an intense run hasn't it for for trips to Anfield obviously easy for you because you live in a city yeah 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 I'm uh yeah slightly shorter journey for me than, than, <laughs> than for you um but yeah it's just been absolutely relentless hasn't it but it's it's exciting though it's um you know some, sometimes it can be difficult to find something new to write about when the games come so thick and fast as they have done but um yeah for, i'm sure you know for the, both for supporters and for journalists you it, it's what you want because you you know you want to be writing about success as a fan it's what you want to to get to March and to think that Liverpool could still win the lot. So it's, um, yeah, these are pretty special times. No, it's incredible times. As I said, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't moan. I'm getting to watch probably the best Liverpool team of my, of my time supporting um, the club in the flesh regularly. And um, I mean, what's interesting about talking to you, James, is, is obviously we are, we are sort of similar ages. We're both from the South, uh, Southern based. I mean, you're not Southern based, you're living in Liverpool now, but Southern born Liverpool fans. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of why I wanted to get you on as well. And um, just as I sort of jokingly refer to as well, because you're you're a bit of a big name, James. I I was uh, in my research for this. I was just I, I knew you had a lot of Twitter followers, but I didn't know you had seven thousand nine hundred and thirty. Let me say that again: seven hundred ninety-three thousand three hundred thirty-seven. Which, as I <laughs> as I discovered, is as I said in the in- introduction, more more than there are people in Luxembourg. It's also then there's more people in Montenegro, Malta and Iceland. Um, <laughs> is this something you keep an eye on? Are you heading, are you a sort of a, hoping to uh, hit the million mark at any point soon? <laughs> no, I can't, <laughs> I can't say it's something I, I keep an eye on. No, it's, um, no, I, I think, I think a lot of that is to, is obviously dating back to my time at the Liverpool Echo where, you know, it was, it was in the early days of Twitter really when we were all told that, this this is going to be big in terms of promoting your work and and it wasn't it, it I'd love to say I was some like visionary that that knew that this was going to become like a big thing but I know I, I, I was it was something we were just told to told to embrace and um and I, I don't and obviously I think it has probably changed a bit over the years and there's certainly a not particularly pleasant side to, to Twitter that probably has changed the way I use it myself but um but yeah, I think going back to those early days, I, I saw it as a good chance to actually communicate with fans and gauge opinion on certain topics and answer questions and all the rest of it, which I think probably that you know, that engagement probably led to that kind of um, 
that spike in in followers when I was uh, when I was at the Echo and um, so yeah, just you know, I think it just became part of the job really that this that kind of leap from having in, you know certainly in the early stages of my journalism career it was just all about you know just writing writing to fill gaps in in newspaper pages suddenly it was all about online mm. social media podcasts video you know it's um i think it became pretty clear that you know if you if you didn't adjust and go with the times you'd, you'd be left behind yeah no absolutely i mean i i've sort of got 30 odd thousand i i i really tweet nothing of interest at all but I think a lot of it is because there are a lot of Liverpool fans on Twitter so if you sort of even half prominent and support the club or talk about the club then you, you get a you get a surge of followers I mean I should say if anyone who's interested there are 632,000 people in Luxembourg so uh, James has got about 160,000 more followers than our people <laughs> in Luxembourg but on a serious point as well the reason you have got so many followers um is because you are a hugely trusted and talented source of, of Liverpool's of news common analysis um, as you said, they spent eight, I think eight years at the Echo, was it from 2011 to 2019? You then joined the Athletic. Uh, I think that's right. I've got that right. And you continue to obviously write brilliantly about the club uh, 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 during your time at the Athletic. As so two and a bit years count and counting, almost three years, I should say as well. And you're part of a sort of group of of Liverpool journalists, likes of Don King, Paul Joyce, Andy Hunter, David Maddock, Simon Hughes, Neil Jones, who who. I think sort of I feel quite proud that you guys are covering the club. I know, obviously, I know Andy very well because he works with me at The Guardian. I know you pretty well. I know the other guys pretty well as well. And I think you're all, you all do an absolutely sort of excellent job. And I think my fellow sort of Liverpool fans as well kind of always see you as really sort of, as I said, trusted and talented source of, of comment, analysis and news. But you sort of, you sort of reference it there. It does come, you must feel kind of sort of privileged to have that role but it does come with a bit of craziness as well because our fan base is quite intense um <laughs> and I think there's no story that sums it up better than the Neil Jones house on fire story um which I th- I'm guessing you you know and oh I just yes think, yes yeah yeah, yeah yeah so a do you want to tell it because I know Neil's obviously a former echo colleague of yours and a good <laughs> mate of yours and b I'm just yeah kind of curious about that balance about having the responsibility and the privilege of writing on Liverpool and, and being someone who Liverpool fans look up to and and trust as I said for, for comment news analysis but having to deal with the the crazy aspects of well and I just I'm curious how you sort of manage that <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting really because I must admit when I I did my I, I, I did a degree in history at Liverpool Uni, like in the late 90s, and I did a postgrad course in journalism because at the time, journalism degree, degrees themselves were quite new. Mm. Um, so that was what I was advised to do. And obviously, you know, when you did, did my training in 2000, you know, social media just wasn't even a yeah. thing. It, was, mm. it wasn't like you had any kind of, kind of training in how to, how to handle social media and how to handle with the, the abuse that... The, that, that comes with it at times as well. Um, so it was just something I think you just kind of over time, you just realized you had to develop a thick skin and, and deal with it as best you can. And yeah, that, I mean, not, not, you, you might know it better than me, the Neil Jones one, but the way I remember it was, I, I think it was, I think it was part, I think it was his garage that was actually on fire. And he tweeted, so, you know, just got back you know, black smoke billowing out of my garage or something. And yeah, I think the first reply was, it was when it was during one of those times when, it doesn't feel like it happens quite so much anymore when players go in international duty and give interviews in their homeland. Yeah. And then obviously they get you know, Google, people use Google Translate. And I think it was Suarez had given some interview somewhere that had suggested he wasn't particularly happy. And I think, so I think the first reply to his house potentially burning down, what do you think of the Suarez quotes? <laughs> um, 
which I think has just become like one of those iconic Twitter moments of just like of how ridiculous a platform it is. And yeah, and just, you know, you wonder what goes through some of these people's heads. I mean, I probably said probably the most ridiculous one I had was when when Liverpool got thrashed 6-1 at Stoke on the the final day of the 14-15 season. You know, you're thinking then, you know, is Brendan Rodgers going to survive as manager? And um, I had one guy who'd been he'd been giving me a fair bit of stick previously, anyway. But he he messaged me in all serious, asking if I would resign as a result of six one defeat. <laughs> Bloody hell! And, and I said, so I just replied and said, "Sorry, I've lost you." Like, what, what do you mean? And he said, "Well, in, as far as I'm I'm concerned, your position is untenable. How can you how can you carry on at the Echo after this?" So I said, "I'm really I'm really I'm st- I just don't really see the link. Like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, if you'd asked better questions over the course of the season, maybe that would have had a, you know, a more positive impact on results. So, oh, my word. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd still rather have people like that than the ones who just go for the jugular in terms of absolutely horrendous abuse. And, yeah, there is a dark side to it. I mean, the, probably the, the worst one I had, actually, was relatively recently where... But it seems to be quite a new thing. This like kind of using Photoshop to doctor tweets, and I had you know so, someone I can't remember what what horrendous thing someone had called me. So I just replied saying, "Silly boy, you're blocked," and um, and then he'd he'd photoshopped it, and then and added like a a racist term into oh the tweet. Oh my god! And really? then it got his mates. Then he tweeted it out, and then got his mates to pile on. Say you know, and you're just like, oh my god! And then you've got people going, you know, I, I can't believe he's used language like that. And you're like, what? Like, so then you know that, you know that 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 just that that pretty, that hit me pretty hard in terms of wow, that's that's um that's probably about as grim as Twitter has has got for yeah. me. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I think yeah, but yeah, by by and large, I still I I I I, I still think the you know the positives out still outweigh the negatives and it is a I, you know I, I you know I, I i never take myself too seriously i don't i don't think you can really when you know you're getting bombarded from all angles because in initially you know i think probably people become so entrenched on the opinion wise mm-hmm. i think more than ever now and everyone's got their favorite player that they've already decided they've nailed their colors to the mass they've already decided this this guy is absolutely brilliant and and inevitably someone else in his position is is an absolute waste of space, and they won't they won't just won't deviate from that. And the second you write anything that doesn't completely tally with what they think, then you've got an agenda, you know. You, you know that, so it's um, yeah, it can be quite funny when you're getting accused of so many different agendas from so many different people. It's um, it's hard to keep up. I mean, going back to the Brendan Rogers days, I remember. You know, I, I I used to have a one to one with Brendan Rodgers in his office once a week, usually on a Thursday, and he he cut that off towards the end of the fourteen fifteen season, saying, you know, you're just too critical with your coverage. It's not fair. You know, oh, wow. I'm, I'm you know I'm not I'm not prepared to go on doing it. And yet at the same time on social media, you, you're getting you know your Rodgers is you know is um, you know, little sidekick, you know, you, you haven't got the balls to criticise and you're like, mm. and obviously you're having to bite your lip thinking, you know, if only they knew that, that like, you're getting it from the other way as well. So, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, in terms of 
working on this patch, I feel really, really fortunate because you're, you're right. I did I did eight and a half years as the Echo's LFC correspondent, but before that, I was I was on the Echo for um, what best part of six years before that as a general mm. kind of sports reporter doing bits of the football, bits of other sports as well, sub editing, uh, page design. So um, yeah, it was. When I first joined the Echo, in it was a month after Istanbul in 2005. That was, it was always my dream to become the LFC reporter. But you know, at that at that point, it just felt like a bit of a you know something like a, a distant ambition that felt like a lot of things would have to align for that to to happen. So um, yeah, to to fast forward to now and to be covering the the, the club as I do week in week out, it, I feel you know very very fortunate. Yeah, no, excellent. Well, we're going to get on to uh, Istanbul and you joining the Echo because it's a very interesting story. It's a story you told in a book that I uh, that I put together. In fact, interestingly, it was a diary of Liverpool's 2014-15 season, which was Brendan Rodgers' last season at the club, which was a, a terrible season. But it was, a, yeah, it was a diary me and my friend Carl Kopak put together. We uh, asked loads of writers to contribute to kind of give personal stories around the matches that were going on around that season. And James kindly wrote a chapter and you sort of yeah outlined your kind of life as a Liverpool fan which is based I've basically used that chapter as a basis for this podcast so I've cribbed it quite a lot and your story around Istanbul is is really interesting so we will come on to that and sort of where where you were and and well it's a bit of a spoiler you didn't go so you weren't in Istanbul it's quite <laughs> and it's all quite interesting but we'll come on to that let's um let's get back to the very start then so as your um your your sort of life as, as a Liverpool fan as I said I find it interesting because we're both as I said earlier, southern uh, southern born, I should say, Liverpool fans are of similar ages. In a way, though, we've gone sort of different ways. As I said you've become kind of a voice on the club. I, I'm someone who spends most of my time in the stands. Um, I grew up as a Londoner, but you grew up uh, in Bath, is that right? And I think I think you said in that chapter as well uh, for the for the book that I did that um, it was around the ages of six and seven that you sort of fell in love with Liverpool. And I don't think there's any sort of family links or anything. I presume you sort of saw them and Sally. They were obviously successful at the time. We're talking sort of mid late eighties as well, and. Um, yeah, it was just kind of love at first sight. I guess that's the way it sounds to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was born in seventy seven, so um, yeah, I did. I, it was I, I. So you know, you're probably looking at being obsessed with football at the age of six or seven. Mm. And everyone in my class, even though about the city of Bath is about two hundred miles south of Liverpool, um, everyone in my primary school was either Liverpool or Everton at the time. You know, they were the yeah, arguably the two best teams in Europe then, let alone England. Um, and I actually did have an aunt who was a scouser that she was the one that first bought me a scarf. Um, and you know, she she was a she was an avid fan herself. So that was that was kind of how it started off. My dad, my dad was never really massive. You know, he, he, you know, I know a lot of people get kind of dragged along to games by their dad and get the bug like that. It was it was almost the other way around with us because it was actually me growing up obsessed with with football, dragging him along to mm. games and saying, you know, please, you know, at, at the time when you're, you know, eight, nine, even like 10, you're thinking Liverpool and Merseyside just seem so far away that, um, you know, we would we would go to like some of the Southern um, away games whenever my dad could manage to get hold of tickets and the rest of it. So, yeah, just just went on from from there, really. And um yeah, even even from kind of the early days at secondary school, when you start to think about you know what you might do beyond school, it was like I'm definitely going to Liverpool Uni. You know, the the idea of like you know I'll just have to find a course there that I can do because I just absolutely loved the idea of of living in the city and being in a position where 
you know, it didn't involve, uh, you know, an eight hours of traveling across the course of a day to get to a, to get to a game and back. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's interesting because like Bath, Bath is a rugby city. Um, hasn't really got an established football team. It's got a quite small non-league side, I think. Yeah. Uh, Southampton, I think, is the nearest nearest sort of big club, but that even that's seventy miles away. And as you said in the in the chapter in the book as well, sort of Bristol's close, but anyone lives in Bath don't have any specific affinity with either Bristol City or Bristol Rovers. And I think that does touch on something that's very common with sort of supporters who are from places that aren't hotbeds for football. That. You know, you can have you could have it thrown at you. I've had it thrown at me. You know, why don't you support your local team? But for you, growing up in Bath, there isn't really a local team. Like it, it was one specifically, and um, you know, as I say, if you want to support even a half decent side, they're miles away. Um, or if there is one in your in your town or city like Bath, with all due respect, they're pretty irrelevant. And so you do kind of that is why your school was full of Liverpool and Everton fans, wasn't it? Because you just you're not in a hotbed of city where football is part of the local culture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. It was all about rugby um, in Bath. You know, even when my first journalism job was on the Bath Chronicle, that at the time was still a daily paper. It's a it's a weekly one now, and you know, just in terms of reflecting what the city was like, you know, you're looking at probably the back five pages every day was Bath rugby, and then you probably had to turn three or four spreads in to find, you know, anything on on Bath City and, and and the other. Uh, kind of non-league clubs in the facility so um yeah I mean I was I was a ball boy at Bath City they were they were knocking around in the they were in the the you know the, the Vauxhall conference for for a number of years and they actually before before my time they they actually in the days when you had to be voted into the football league they the closest they ever came to being a football league club was actually 1977 when it went down to a vote between the northern you had to vote for the Northern Champions or the Southern Champions to be promoted. And it was actually Wigan Athletic who'd won the Northern, who got promoted into the Football League and and, and Bath ended up staying put in the non-league ranks and have, have never looked like getting up there since. So, um, so yeah, but it was, it, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, it's, it, it's right what you say in terms of, because I, I, over the years, as a journalist as well, certainly when I was at the Echo, you know, the number of people that would meet me after, you know, they might have read my stuff for years and they'd be like, you're not a Scouser. Yeah. I, I thought you were, a, I thought you were a Scouser. <laughs> and it's normal. No, I never told you I was a Scouser. You might have assumed I was. But, um, you know, and, and I've lived in Liverpool now for, oh God, what, 17 years plus three at uni. So you were talking about 20 years and I'm 44. So that's nearly half my life. But yeah, I don't think, I don't think my accent is going anywhere. Um so it's, no, I think over the over the years, I've kind of, I think it something, probably was a point where you almost felt a little bit embarrassed because you would get people saying, "Well, why, why do you support Liverpool? Why are you why are you keep on going up there and all the rest? You know, why would why would you not go to Southampton or Villa?" And you'd be like, "But I don't get it because what affinity would I have with Southampton? You know, it's yeah. seventy miles away. Villa's ninety miles away. Like even Bristol, you know, ten miles away. Where you know, you, what, why would I just suddenly pick?" You know, it's you know, it, yeah. I never really understood that. And then, you know, over the years, I think, especially having you know, in the fortunate position I've been, where I've been on pre-season tours all around the world, I've never really understand this idea that you know, you're not a proper fan unless you know, unless you you know, you've got an L postcode. Because mm. you know, I, I know so many people and so many great friends that I've met on these tours who the things they go through to support the club is absolutely extraordinary in terms of you know, setting the alarm for two, three, four a.m. Mm. You know, going well and beyond the 
the Call of Duty, and you know, you think, you know, when you when you, I was sat there listening to ninety odd thousand people singing "You Never Walk Alone" in the MCG, and it's like, yeah, you can't tell me these aren't these aren't proper Liverpool fans. The you know eighty odd thousand in Indonesia for a, in Jakarta for a pre-season friendly that, that felt like a Champions League final with like firecrackers and yeah. flares going off all over the place. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, over, over the years, I've just, it's, um, yeah, it's always, like, I, I've had that thrown at me quite a bit really, but, um, but no, it's, uh, it was never any chance of, of supporting anyone else to be honest, because um, yeah, even, even right down to, you know, when, when probably the last season Liverpool won the league, I've got scrapbooks of, you know, I, I used to, when the, when the games were on TV, which wasn't, you know, it was like a, a treat when a game was on TV mm. back then with like, you had know, the big match live, didn't you? It was, you know, I'd, I'd even write little match reports and, and put them in a scrapbook and it was, um, so yeah, it was, it was always, it was always Liverpool and it was always a fascination with, I just, you know, when, when, when I'd go to matches, I'd have a little look at the press box and it just used to fascinate me that people actually did that for a job. It was like, it was like, really like, can you actually do that? That's, that counts as work, watching football and writing, writing about it. It just, it just, it, it was just something that always massively appealed. Oh, that's interesting. And we'll come on to your first Liverpool game in a second, because you, you did kindly provide the details for it. But before we do that, so that's interesting. Were you going to games as a kid then when, you, when you're dragging your dad around to, to you know, to, to games mainly in the South, as you said, that you were looking at the press box and seeing that maybe A, you'd be an interest in journalism just generally, but B, this is this was going to be your way of, of watching Liverpool regularly. You didn't sort of think, oh, I want to be a match goer. I want to stand in the away end uh, at grounds I'm going to. And then in, in the cop, for instance, did you sort of specifically go, I want to sit in the press box. That's how I want to follow Liverpool when I get older. No, no, it was more kind of, it was more kind of that was what I want to do as a job. I must, like, yeah. even, even as a kid, I didn't think, I didn't think I'd ever reach a point where I was actually writing about Liverpool because, you know, I, I thought, you know, even if I could, even if I could get a job right about Bath City in like the, the Southern Premier Division, you know, that, that to me was like still amazing, like being able yeah. to just go and watch football and write about it. So you know, it was, no, it was, it wasn't so much, you know, I, I I always loved the idea of of coming to live in Liverpool, like you know, regardless of whatever happened work wise, and obviously, you know, at that age there were certainly no guarantees that that anything would work out in terms of journalism because mm. you know it doesn't you know obviously a degree of talent kind of is you know you kind of can only take you so far, but you also need a hell of a lot of luck and opportunities to come along at the at the rock at the right point. So it was. Yeah, it was it was more kind of football journalism in general, as, as opposed to kind of looking and thinking, right? You know, I wanna I wanna write about Liverpool because, you know, I it's you, I I knew even then that you know it was that was that was a, a you know a pretty lofty thing to to try and aim towards because so few people you know get got that opportunity, especially at that time. And you know, obviously it's slightly different now with the way you know with the the way that the internet has mm. transformed things, and there's so many different places now for fans to get content on Liverpool but yeah certainly back then um it was just more the idea of football journalism in general that that really really you know appealed to me yeah absolutely well let's talk about your first game then your first the first Liverpool game you attended and it was on the 5th of May 1990 Coventry City won Liverpool six at Highfield Road. It was the final day of the 89-90 season. Uh, Liverpool, just quite soon after Liverpool had been crowned champions for the 18th time. 
Uh, you told me in an email that you sent um, when, when you explained what your first game was. That it was a trip organised by your youth junior football club, Bear Flat. Um, <laughs> so I've got three questions for you, James. Yeah. So question one, can you name Liverpool's goal scorers from that day? Question two, why specifically Coventry? Although I think you slightly answered that because you were sort of going around the south when you were watching when you were watching Liverpool at that time in your life. Thirdly, yeah, Bear Flat. I mean, what's what's the story behind that name? That's an extraordinary name for a, for a youth football <laughs> club. <laughs> um, well, I'll start with the last one. Bear, Bear Flat is actually uh, an area of Bath. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so that was yeah, that was the junior team, and we, that, that was there was always like an end of season trip. So that was. That was yeah. That was obviously the last day of the season. I think it might have been the week before they 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 they'd collected the trophy. Um, and yeah, I mean, like it was. It, I just I remember like it was a absolutely baking hot day. It was like your kind of stereotypical last day of the season. You know, absolutely cracking the flags. Um, and Liverpool went one 0 down after two minutes, mm. and, you, and you're thinking, oh, you know, all that, all all those all those years of like being so desperate to see Liverpool live and then, you know, oh, we're 1-0 down after two minutes. But, you remember um, who scored the goal for Coventry? I didn't answer that, but I've got that down as well. Do you know who scored after two minutes for them? Was it Kevin Gallagher? It was Kevin Gallagher. Well done. Kevin, yeah, yeah. Kevin yeah. Gallagher, yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, and then Liverpool just like, it was almost like a kind of reaction of, have you really had the temerity to go ahead <laughs> against us? And, yeah. and then they just went through the gears. 6-1. John Barnes' hat-trick. Ian Rush and Ronnie Rosenthal got two, I think. That is spot on. Well done. Yeah, John Barnes yeah. hat-trick. Ronnie Rosenthal got, yeah, as you say, got two and Ian Rush got the other. So, um, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going to say all iconic names. I'd say Barnes and Rush and uh, are certainly iconic. Rosenthal, uh, I don't know if iconic's the right word for a bit of a cult hero more than anything. Yeah. yeah big win, yeah. For you. Now, that's great. Isn't it? Your first game in the flesh. Liverpool have absolutely run riot. I mean... <laughs> Were you in the away end? Um, where were you sat? What, have you got any other sort of general memories of the, of the day? I mean, you're quite yeah, young. Do you, know, do you know what? I can't really remember. Like, I just remember like loads of us had Liverpool kits on, and I've got I've got like quite a few pictures from the day. So I don't remember that. I don't remember. We definitely weren't in the away end because I remember looking at the away end. Okay. Um, but we we must have been in some in some area where you could wear a Liverpool kits without any fear of. Of anyone giving you a piece of their mind in the maybe maybe it was I imagine it was probably the family enclosure. Yeah, yeah, makes in sense. The, yeah. In the in the, the commentary yeah. and obviously yeah, Highfield Road. Um, you know, it's no obviously no longer no longer with us. Park in early for Drinkle. Allow for speeding a lovely ball through for Gallagher. He's in with a shot on goal. Liverpool go level and goes for the one-two. 
Harvey hits it straight at Rush. Liverpool rather fortunately keep possession of Barnes in there. 2-1! Superb finishing by the England winger. Well, it may have been fortunate in the initial build-up, but the ball through found Barnes. He picked it up with his left foot and with the same foot just slotted it into the top right-hand corner, almost nonchalantly putting Liverpool 2-1 ahead. Excellent finishing. Liverpool 2, Coventry City 1. Barnes will be offside and have to hold the pass up. Staunton now. Perfect. Hussain who's there and Barnes 3-1. It's so easy isn't it? The build up down that right hand side was Staunton. And who should pop up with Glenn Hussain to get into an advanced position to the byline. Pull the ball back like a winger. Straight into the path of John Barnes, and from almost an identical position, put Liverpool 3-1 ahead. 40 minutes gone. Coventry City 1, Liverpool 3. Rush tricks his way past Peak. 5 on 4 now. Straight through for Rosenthal to show his paces. 4-1. Surely, yes. Rosenthal, his sixth goal in six games. And up the pace a little, burst into the Coventry City area and slotted it home past Grizovic. Coventry City 1, Liverpool 4. Staunton leaves it for Mulby. Rush out to the left-hand side. Hussein is still down and holding his ankle. Barnes just steps inside, fires one, 5-1. Barnes is hat-trick. Tremendous, just stepped inside Alan Clark as if he wasn't there and fired it past the Grizovic and almost took the net off the pegging. Liverpool go 5-1 ahead and it's almost effortless. Rosenthal's outside, the pass perfectly timed, Rosenthal to fire it across, 6-1. It's almost inevitable, every time they go forward you think it's going to be another goal. The pass from Barnes was perfectly timed. Rosenthal, in acres of space, just looked up, had time to hit his shot as hard as he liked, and Agrizovic could not be blamed for not getting to it. And Liverpool goes 6-1 ahead. Well, that's enough, says referee Roberts. And seven goals should be enough for anybody. Coventry City had the audacity to take the lead after only two minutes through Kevin Gallagher and although they had a fair share of the play in the first half it was really all Liverpool in the second two goals from Ronnie Rosenthal, one from Ian Rush and a hat-trick from John Barnes just emphasise how good Liverpool are on a day when things didn't matter that much they came here to celebrate their league championship the fans came down from Liverpool and a celebration party is what Liverpool have provided for them. The final score then, Coventry City 1, Liverpool 6. One of the other memories from that day is just kind of on the way back saying to my dad, you know, please, it's got to be Anfield next. Like, as, you know, as good as that was, you know, come on. You know, and I think so. I think that was that May 1990 and then it was October 1990 when he took me to Anfield for the first time so that was that was like a slightly early birthday present for 
I would have been coming up. I was, what would have been 12? I've been 12 going on 13 then. So we saw that was end October. Liverpool beat Chelsea 2 0. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that's probably the day I've got kind of more vivid memories from just because, yeah, to actually make it to Anfield for the first time was, was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, my first game was a few years later. It was the 13th of December, 1992. We beat Blackburn 2-1. And I was desperate to be in the cop, but I went with my uncle and my cousin, but we couldn't get tickets in the cop. We're in the Anfield Road end. And I was actually glad I was there in at the end because it was the old standing cop. Yeah. And, and and to get to see it in its sort of full glory, sort of swaying and moving, I was actually glad I was able to see it as opposed to be in it, if that makes sense. So actually, see, you know, I'd love to be in it at least once in my life. I never got the chance, sadly. But just to see it in its sort of full glory was absolutely incredible. You would have, I presume you weren't in the cop for that, for that Chelsea game in 1990. So, I mean... Is that one of the memories from that game as well? Seeing the cop in its old glory. I think we, we're of an age we're very lucky. That, okay, we never got. I don't know if you ever did, but I never got to stand in it. But I still feel very fortunate. I got to see it, the old standing cop, and and just it's just it was just that's for me was a standout memory of my first game seeing it. It was just an incredible sight. Yeah, yeah, very similar actually. I was we were, we were actually sat kind of the the cop end of the the main stand. You know, the the old main stand with the mm-hmm. the wooden seats, and um, so yeah, it was we were we were pretty pretty high up, almost just kind of above the corner flag, so pretty close to the cop. And you're right, yes, that's one of the things I remember was spending so much time just gazing at the mm. cop and that swaying and and the and the singing and the vibrancy and the colour and the noise. Um, you know, in, in that game, Liverpool were two 0 up after, I think it was about 20 minutes on Chelsea, Rush and, and Steve Nickel and... Um, and yeah, just, you know, other little things like walking up the steps of the main stand and just seeing, seeing, I know it sounds stupid, like just seeing the grass for the first time. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, you know, that is actually here. And, you know, and, and like you know, watching the warm up and just, just little things like that. And then it was so different to how it is now because I remember like saying to my dad, oh, you know, can we stay around afterwards to try and get some autographs? And we, we just where where the players used to just park their cars in the old main stand car park. We just loitered kind of outside that main entrance, and probably you know, it's probably about an hour and a half after the game. And by that point, you know they were selling copies of the Pink Echo. There was a guy by the Shankly Gates. So you know it is slightly you know again now it's just unthinkable, isn't it? But there you got you know there's there's people selling newspapers with match reports on that. That, that afternoon's gaming already by like this is probably half six mm. after a 3 p.m. Mm. Saturday kickoff and and then yeah managed to get quite a few signatures and photos um I've still got you know meet like Ian Rush and, and John Barnes and Rosenthal and Bruce Grobbler um Barry Venison people like this so it was um yeah just just you know just an absolute absolutely you know just one of those things that you just cherish forever really and you know I do quite often think of it when I go back to Anfield now that you know it's easy sometimes especially in this job to take things for granted a little bit but when you think back to to that day and um yeah that was that that's that's something that's you know so so special and I suppose the other the funny thing from that day was I remember my, my dad bought me a scarf outside the, the stadium and um it was and I remember on the way back, and he had a, my dad had this old white van that he'd that he'd um, driven up in. And in, on, on the van on the way back, I was kind of looking at all the little, you know, the, the, the rosette I'd got from the club shop, and you know, and the scarf, and it had like eighteen times Champions of England on it. 
And uh, and I remember saying to my dad, oh, you know, I, I wish I hadn't got this scarf. And he was like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, because it's going to be out of date in May. And like, you know, I don't, you know, it's, you know, I, I wanted something that, you know, I, you know, I should have got a different one. I should have got something with something else on it. And then, and I've still got that scarf. And uh, yeah, I had it, I had it wrapped around my neck when, um, when Liverpool mathematically clinched the title in 2020, because um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realise when I was on that journey back to Manfield in, October 1990, yeah. that scarf would still be uh, factually correct for, for quite so long. That's lovely about you wearing a scarf in 2020. So would that have been, because um, we won it when City lost to Chelsea, didn't we? Yeah. So when, yeah, when did you yeah. wear it? Were you wearing it in the press box? Or, oh, you just wearing yeah. it at home watching just, the game? With? Yeah, just sat at home watching oh, the game. Oh, that's lovely. Cracked open the champagne and had it around my neck when we were doing the, the reaction podcast that night. So, oh, that's um, great. So yeah. Uh, yeah, found the I got the ro- got the rosette as well with the uh, Liverpool champions on it, which um, which again, you know, it's uh, that's that's still on the mantelpiece actually. Probably probably should have taken it down once <laughs> yeah. uh, once, once City won it back, but um, yeah. hopefully hopefully it'll be true again in a few months. Yeah, I got a sort of similar story to that about the scarf. Where I can't remember, it must have been around nineteen ninety, maybe ninety one. We went to Butlins in Skegness, and they had like a shop where you could buy stuff. And for some reason, they were selling sort of Liverpool merchandise or maybe football merchandise in general. So it was a bit random. But they had these sort of pendants, you know, like the ones where you swap, the captain swap before a Champions yeah, League yeah. game, sort of those type of things. And there was a really fancy one and a really kind of cheap, tacky one. And um, my mum bought me the sort of the cheap, tacky one. Like she, she, she wouldn't buy me the expensive one. And she bought me sort of the cheap, tacky one. And the cheap, tacky one said Liverpool 1990 champions on it. <laughs> and um, I was a bit gutted. She got me sort of a slightly crappy one because I wanted a nice sort of nice one, which had the other one had sort of like sort of it was just a bit more shiny and a bit more classy and stuff. And um, but I looked at it, I thought, well, we're going to uh, it says 99 league champion, so it's going to be out of date soon. So I'll be able to, <laughs> as an excuse, I'll be able to say to my mum, look, I can't use this anymore because it says 19. Yeah, you'll have to get me a new one because this is out of dates. And obviously, yeah, like you, lo and behold, 30 years later, it was still waiting. You know, eventually happened, obviously. But <laughs> sat through 30 years of that pendant still being uh, being relevant, which we sort of hurt a little bit. Um, no, that's great. That's really interesting. And yeah, you, you've touched on it. Let's let's get on to this. So you went to university in Liverpool. Um, it sounds like pretty much specifically to watch Liverpool. That was some, one of the things I always said I would do and I never did. And I have sort of massive regrets about that. Um, I mean, was that very much a case? I think you went between 1996 and 1999 university of liverpool to study was it history and politics and politics yeah yeah so was that specifically so you could be in the city and get to get to go to anfield as as, as regularly as possible yeah 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 that yeah. was the that was the main the main motivation and like, like i said it was at the time although although i was pretty clear at that point i, I desperately want to be a journalist journalism degrees themselves were were still in in their infancy so i'd, I'd been told you know just do you know if if you love history and you love politics, do a degree yeah. in that. And then if you, after three years, if you still want, you know, if you, you're still as passionate about journalism as you are now, then do a postgrad course. So um, I was just fortunate that, that Liverpool did that course and I managed to get in. And um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was, you know, it didn't take long to meet quite a few like-minded people who had come from all over the place um, to study in Liverpool and, felt the same way about the club as I did. So, um, yeah. Oh, was that quite similar then? Did you meet a lot of people who, or others who had, who had come for that same motive? Like I support Liverpool, but I'm from the South or where, or from not from the city yeah. and I want to go watch them regularly. This is yeah, my main motivation yeah. from being here. Yeah. Probably about a handful of people I'd say okay. that similar, 
similar scenarios. And then there was um, my mate Pete, who I live with at uni, who's still a good mate to this day. We had a bit of a setup going on where kind of he, um, I think back then, I don't even think you can do it now, but it used to be 18 days before a game ringing the hotline to when there would be a general sale. And um, and you'd, you'd literally, sometimes you'd have to sit there for an hour just pressing redial, read, and then you'd get the engaged tone, hang up, do it again. So you'd, you'd do it probably, you know, you could be doing it two, three hundred times before. Finally, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, it, would, it would actually ring and then you'd be in a queue. Um, but once you were in the queue, you pretty much knew that you were going to be okay. And then, like, it was... It was um, pretty time-consuming, but it was, <laughs> thankfully it was. We used to work it. It was like, well, you know, if you haven't got lectures that morning, then you do it or I'll do it. And um, I was lucky that doing an arts degree, it wasn't exactly too too time-consuming. The amount of time that we had to spend in seminars and lectures and stuff. So, um, so yeah, we went to went to the vast majority of home games over the course of those three years. And um, you know, although now you know you look back on that period in Liverpool's history and was massively successful, obviously, in terms of silverware. But it was, I still absolutely love that period of watching Liverpool. They, you know, it was, I always felt, you know, quite sorry for Roy Evans in terms of the, the way in which he was judged because, um, you know, it was, yes, he wasn't able to make Liverpool champions. But I tell you what, you know, what a brand of football yeah. that team played. And, um, you know, you had Fowler, you know, just, an absolute sensation after you know bursting onto the scene and um McManaman, one of my favorite ever Liverpool players, you know, it was just you know, he'd be he'd be worth the admission fee at Anfield alone. So it was um yeah, you know, clear, clearly, you know, they weren't they weren't good enough to take that final step, but there was those those were still like, you know, really, really great days. And it was, you know, just it never really wore off that kind of um that kind of feeling of being able to leave the house at two o'clock and, and get to Anfield at half two and have a quick <laughs> pint before before going to watch a three o'clock kickoff. It was like, you know, this is amazing. It was before then it had been like a military operation going to Anfield. Yeah. And you're setting off at nine in the morning and, and, and all the rest of it and getting back in the early hours. Yeah, which is yeah my my existence at the moment. So I'm yeah, very very <laughs> jealous of je- very jealous of a life like that. It was one I wanted, and I never saw I never took the plunge, which I sort of massively regret. Now, as you say, I mean, I, you know, as I said, similar ages. I I love the Roy Evans years, and actually we're, we're pretty good then re- relatively. I, mean, I think under in his four full season, we finished third, fourth, third, fourth, won won the Coca Cola Cup, and as you say, played some absolutely brilliant football. And um, it was just Man United in a way, which was yeah. which was unfortunate. Um, yeah. So um, just to sort of fast forward a bit, then so. Um, you went back to Bath, I think, after university, began your journalism career there. You say as you got a job as a training reporter at the Bath Chronicle, but there was always that desire to get back to Liverpool and work at the Echo. And that desire was so strong that, as we said earlier, it resulted in you not being in Istanbul and instead watching the 2005 Champions League final at the Clifton Wine Bar, I believe that's right. It was certainly what yeah. you wrote in the, in the book yeah, I did. True. Do you want to just want to tell that story? Because I think it's... I think it's a really interesting one because it, it, it's one of sort of sacrifice. And I also then wonder if it then, once you did start the Echo, sort of, it was literally the month after Istanbul, wasn't it? If it, that really then hardened up your desire to become the Liverpool reporter because there, there might be, I mean, tell the story, but then there might then be that sense of, I can't miss out on, on nights like this again. I, I want to be in the ground when Liverpool are playing these big games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was just a kind of a, a funny turn of events because, as you said, during during those years back in Bath, so I, I started work on the, the Bath Chronicle in 
um, 2000. And then, so I did, did five years there. And it was, it was an absolute world away from covering Premier League games. You know, I'm, I'm, I was... I was covering non-league football sometimes in front of, you know, 120, 150 people, these games and you know, your, your notebook is getting absolutely sodden because, you know, you're in a, you know, a stand with no roof, yeah. or a leaking roof and all the rest of it. Um, but it was a great, it was a great grounding. And I still, I do look back on that period with loads of fondness with the people you met and just the lessons you learned. Cause it doesn't matter where, what level of football you're writing about when you're covering a team day in, day out and doing interviews, you, you know, you make mistakes, you know, as I continue to do to this day, but you, hopefully you learn from them um, and hopefully get get better at things. So it was, um, yeah, it was actually in the January 2005 that I went for a, a, um, an interview at the Echo. And um, and then I was actually quite lucky that it actually Liverpool were playing that night. So I stayed around and it was the most appalling goalless draw with Blackburn, I think it was. And then um, you know, I felt like the interview had gone all right. But then I just didn't hear anything for like weeks. Then it turned into a month. It turned into two months. So I just assumed, God, I must have been that bad. I didn't even, I wasn't even worth a stamp to say thanks for coming. But, but no, but no thanks. We've all but, been there. Um, We've all had one of those experiences, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then bizarrely out of nowhere in about the, probably the April, um, I got a phone call from the sports editor to say that there'd been a recruitment freeze that had been in, you know, had kind of enforced in the February or something. And he, and he meant to have let me know um but the, the 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 freeze was being lifted and they wanted to offer me the job um and and the, you know i think they wanted me to start you know, i think it was early it was late yeah late june i think it was in 2005 so um and then but it was it was you know it was like i said it wasn't it wasn't like a you know some amazing job covering mm. premier league football this was no. you know we want you to 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 help out with sub editing we want you to do a little bit of writing in terms of the minority sports that we feel as if we don't really cover as well as we do at the minute. So, you know, talk to me about, you know, we want you to go and do you know, interviews with swimmers and gymnasts and hockey players and judo and taekwondo and all these rugby union, you know, the, the amateur side of that on Merseyside. And so it was more kind of, thing. and I was, I was deputy sports editor on the desk in Bath, but it was like kind of, this is, you know, this this is probably a little step back to hopefully take take a few forward in the future because you know at the time the Liverpool Echo was probably regarded as the, in the top two or three regional papers in the country. Um, so yeah, and it was you know, and whilst you know this decision making was rumbling on, thinking what am I going to do, you know, Liverpool then got you know they get through to Istanbul, and then you're thinking, oh God, and my my mate Pete, who was the one that I was going to all the games with at uni. Um, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was going and, you know, and, you know, he was saying, you know, I'm trying to get you a, a ticket as well. And, and then it was, it was only literally the day before the final when he, he rang me and said, I've, I've managed to get you one, you know, can you, can you get yourself over for it? And it was, yeah, it was, it was literally like the, the same week that I, me and my wife had decided to, um, to, to kind of bite the bullet and move from Bristol to, to Liverpool and I was taking about a five grand pay cut at the time. And it was like, when you added, you added it all up and it was like flights, I think were like 1500 quid. The hotel was like 400 quid. Cause it was a usual thing where, you know, <laughs> you just yeah, get yeah. absolutely fleeced left, yeah. right and center when you go to one of those major finals. And so I was thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be like a well over like a two grand trip here. 
And it was just incredibly difficult to justify it at a time when, I, I, you know, it was, it was like we'd taken such a big decision in terms of, you know, a life-changing thing in terms of work and relocating. So with a heavy heart, I said to him, I'm just not going to be able to do it. And yeah, just one of those that, you know, it had a, you know still had a great night, but not not the night that it, it could and should have been because, um, of course, sat in that sat in that bar, there was there was full of Liverpool fans in Bristol at half time. You're thinking, thank God. You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine spending all of that money on you know to go over there to witness this humiliation? And then, yeah, fast forward, well, probably an hour and fifteen minutes, and uh, you're thinking I'd have paid five or ten grand yeah. and remortgaged the house to be able to say to be able to say I was there. Within Pirlo's sights, but he delivers it low. What a start! Paolo Maldini, the Milan captain, strikes first in the first minute. Well, I said he put in quality, but I don't think he did. And I think Milan have got lucky. Would you believe the captain comes up when he's weak aside and finishes it off? Here's Kaka, and here's the trouble. It's Shevchenko, it's Crespo, it's 2-0 Milan. And it just gets worse for Liverpool before half-time. Well, from possibly being a penalty within 15, 20 seconds, AC Milan feel the game is over. Absolutely certain. The dugout's out. They all know. They just cannot believe it, Pete. And they split again here. Another chance for Crespo. Another goal for Hernan Crespo. And it's 3 0 to Milan before half time. Well, just clip that out if you're a young kid at home watching and watch it time and time again because football at the highest level and if you want to win football at the highest level you have to be able to do things like that that piece of skill that vision that quality of pass and then the finish just to wrap things up well only half time but it looks as though Chelsea will have a Champions League winner this season good header lifeline for Liverpool who else their captain Steven Gerrard and for about the first time in the match, they pass the ball across the midfield. They work it a little bit. It's an early warning to Milan that there might be some life left in this game. My man. Bit of belief now about Liverpool. Good strike! What a remarkable comeback this could be! Vladimir Schmitzer with a goal. Dina couldn't keep it out. And suddenly it's on again for Liverpool. Well, I thought he was a little bit shoddy at the first, but I was only concentrating on Gerrard's finish. But this flag should have gone up. Liverpool might talk about the penalty, but they should have been defending. It's a lovely strike. Start another attack here. Barras leaves it in the path of Steve. Penalty! Gerrard. Penalty! Penalty's given! I don't believe this. Is it going off? No. No decision. maybe somebody take Phil Thompson down from the roof of our studio because he must be up there flying against Serginho who misses best Birmingham hesitates but scores 
Elliot Paul to miss. But he has missed! Dudek saves! 2-0 lead in the shootout. And he does! It's all phase. John Dahl Thomason. No. Risa turned around but has the emphatically taken Schmitzer's last act for Liverpool misses and Liverpool have the European glory they have the European Cup for keeps their fifth victory in this competition means they keep the cup and this has been the most remarkable of all their successes. Shevchenko, inconsolable. Liverpool, European capital of football, 2005. Yeah, it, it probably doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't annoy me now as much as it, it used to because I think um, certainly at the time you think to yourself, well, is it going to happen again? And as it as it was, you know, I was very lucky to be in. I was well, I was in Athens in two thousand and seven, which obviously didn't go great, but it was still an amazing experience to be there at a Champions League final, and then you know to be in to be in Kiev and to and to be in Madrid. Um, you know that was that was right up there because you know that the the Champions League final in Madrid in twenty nineteen that was that was effectively my last game for the Echo. So I, mm. you know the week before that, I'd agreed to. To join the athletics, where it was like, you know, it would it was I was thinking, you know, this this would be a, a lovely, lovely way to sign off if my last match report for the Echo is is them lifting the the, the the European Cup for the sixth time. And yeah, luckily that's how it worked out. It did indeed, yeah. It was a magical day, yeah, yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Um so yeah, just go back again then. So you became the um the Echoes Liverpool Report eventually March twenty eleven. And interestingly in in the chapter you wrote for 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 wherever we were us, the book I did, uh, the diary of the 2014-15 season, you said that people had warned you the the job probably wouldn't would never go to a to a non-scouser as you were sort of working your way throughout the Echo, trying to get this dream job of following Liverpool for the Echo. How much was that a sort of a genuine thing? And and I guess the fact that you did then become the first non-scouser to beat the Echo's Liverpool reporter. I mean, actually something you're proud of. In a way, it's kind of it's kind of, you know, given your love of the city and the love of the club, it's kind of sort of proof of you being almost adopted as sort of one of their own in a way that you, you did, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a monumental sort of achievement in itself and a kind of uh, sort of a sign almost, not directly, but indirectly that you'd been fully adopted into the city. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't mind admitting there was a there was a few tears of joy shed that day when I when I, when I finally got it. Um, because, yeah, I did, I did wonder at numerous points whether it would whether it would ever happen. I think I was, I was massively lucky to work with some, some fantastic journalists on the echo, you know, Chris Bascom was a Liverpool reporter when I first joined. So, you know, learned a lot from him. Um, you know, Tony Barrett then came after Chris. Um, and it was, it was kind of like during Tony's time as a Liverpool reporter that that's when I, you know, I think because there was so much going on off the pitch with Hicks and Gillette at that period, that um, you know, and the ownership issues that it was Tony who kind of flagged to the hierarchy at the Echo that you know it's, this is almost too much for one person. You almost need someone to do the the football and someone to do the politics because there's that much going on. So that that kind of opened a bit of an avenue there. And then um, obviously Dominic King, you know, it was great to work with after after Tony. Um, so it was yeah, it was and it was after it was you know after Dominic left and then I did it on a kind of 
an interim basis for a few months where you, you thought, yes, you know, finally, you know, it feels like I've kind of done the apprenticeship and hopefully proved I can do it. And then, um, and then they gave the job to a news reporter that, that didn't work out. And within a month, about, yeah, about a month, six weeks, he, he decided that it wasn't for him and went back to, to news again. So that was, yeah, I must admit probably at that point it was like, yeah, this, this is just never going to happen. And, you know, I did, I did start looking around for other things because it was like, that was, that was a bit of a slap in the face at the time. But, um, but yeah, it, um, in, in the end, in the end, it, it, it happened. It was, it was yeah, probably made even more surreal by like, you know, that, you know, it was only probably yeah, late February, early March when I started doing it on a permanent basis in 2011. And of course, by then Kenny Dogleash is back as manager who was, you know, one of my heroes growing up, you know, um, don't remember too much of him as a player, but, you know, for, for his iconic achievements as a, as a manager. So that, um, yeah, that, that was suddenly being in a catapulted into a position where, you know, you've got Kenny's mobile number and you're ringing him every day, hoping that he'll throw you a couple of bones and to give you something for the, the following day's back page. It was, um, yeah, sometimes you had to like pinch yourself and think, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have imagined this when I was um, sat at Twerton Park writing about Bath City. Uh, it was, it was a bit of a leap. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I used to host a, uh, another podcast, a Liverpool-based podcast called The Runner, and you were kind enough to be on that as well. And you told me a great story about you ringing Kenny one day to get, as I said, to get a line for for the Echo, and didn't you end up helping him? sort of find Eurosport on his TV or something. Do you remember that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, there was quite a few things like that because he was, as everyone knows, you know, Kenny was, his his kind of, his approach in terms of the media was certainly very much, you know, kind of, you, you try and say as little as possible and, you know, never give too much away. Um, so, yeah, being, being able to chat to him on the phone didn't necessarily translate into having a, a massive amount of great sparkling yeah. quotes or copy because yeah there was there were so many times when I'd be sat in the corner on the phone to him with my pen and my pad and and I could see the sports editor looking over as if to say wow you know he's had 20 minutes on the phone <laughs> with Kenny there you know I can't wait and I'm and my heart's already dropping because I can I'm thinking if only he knows like we've spent, <laughs> yeah we've spent the last 10 minutes me trying to help him trying to show him on his you know trying to talk him through using his sky control you know where 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 the TV guide is, where where Eurosport is. Um, so uh, yeah, there was. Um, but he was he was great. He was great, Kenny. Um, yeah, he was just. I, I think he. You know, again, because because of the way that league season finished in you know in 2011, 12, and obviously, you know, he, he was relieved of his duties when they brought Brendan Rodgers in. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone overlooks you know, what like he he kind of breathed new life into Liverpool. Kenny he started that kind of that that kind of rebirth after the the you know the just the, the living nightmare that was Hicks and Gillette yeah. coupled with Roy Hodgson. Um, so uh, yeah, and to be at Wembley for the, that League Cup win in 2012, and you know, agonisingly close to pulling off a domestic cup double. With that, with that narrow defeat to Chelsea in the FA Cup final, it was, um, yeah, it was. He, he was, he was, he was great, Kenny. And uh, you only had to like see the, just the, the way in which you know him coming in was like flicking a switch in terms of just changing the moods. You know, probably you know, in the dressing room as much as in the in the stands at Anfield as well. 
Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be at his first game back, the Man United FA Cup tie in uh, sort of January 2011. Hodgson got sacked and then Kenny sort of came back to the rescue, didn't he? And yeah, the away end at Old Trafford, we lost that game 1-0, but to yeah. be in the away end at Old Trafford that day was just, yeah, there was kind of palpable relief that Roy wasn't, Roy Hodgson wasn't manager anymore, but just the kind of overriding joy as well. Among sort of Liverpool, slightly old Liverpool fans, obviously, a main man who I go with regularly sort of, is about 10, 15 years older. I mean, obviously grew up loving Kenny. So I think people of that generation felt it more, but even me, who as I like you, I never saw him play and his managerial years a bit foggy. I don't remember them particularly well. Still to see him come back and walk on that touchdown was, it was just, yeah, it was an absolute fantastic, extraordinary moment. Um, so I said, you know, eight and a bit years at the Echo, you've, you've almost done three at the Athletic now. You've probably covered 99.9% of Liverpool's games home and away in that time. Wrote loads of pieces at the, on the club. You've got to know loads of people at the club, like the likes of Kenny Dalglish. It's an incredibly intense experience for a Liverpool fan um, like yourself. How do you feel then that sort of shaped your relationship with Liverpool? Has it made you love and appreciate the club more or has it actually sort of chipped away there a little bit more because you've been able to look behind the curtain and perhaps some of the things you've seen have, uh, have been a bit disappointing, perhaps underwhelming or just play not very good? Um, yeah, do you know what? I think more than anything, I think just sometimes, I think, I think especially when the really like incredible moments come and the the big, you know, the, the the iconic wins that you know are gonna, you know, I, I think the only thing I really miss is not being able to properly enjoy them because essentially, you know, you're working. Like I, I think back to like, you know, the the greatest night I've definitely ever had at Anfield, you know, and I think probably the same for a lot of people. The, the comeback against Barcelona in 2019, and it was, <laughs> it was, it, you know, I just remember thinking, just just being like absolutely awestruck afterwards for. And not been able to type a thing for kind of 15, 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, I didn't really like I, I wanted I wanted to just go and enjoy it. And, and like just I didn't I didn't want to then shut myself away for a couple of hours and and try and make sense of it. So that there's that element of it. Um yeah, and I suppose at times there probably has been what you said then about, you know, looking behind the curtain and you, you know, and obviously, yeah, when you do see, you know, sometimes the way that that people operate, of course, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you think I'd, I'd rather not, I'd rather <laughs> not know that. Um, but, um, but no, I, I think, I think by and large, I'd like to think being a, cause you know, people often say, Oh, you know, is that difficult? You know, being a fan and being a journalist, you know, of the same club, you know, can you, can you really be kind of, you know, objective and, and, you know, and, it, and it's like, well, I've, I've always thought it's helped because, you know, I'd like I'd like to think that being a being a fan myself, you kind of, you know, every week I try and and probably now more than ever when with the athletic, you're trying to think about, you know, different different pieces of content and stuff that that is, you know, because there's no point getting, you know, being in that kind of hamster wheel of pre-match press conference, post-match press conference, mix zone quotes and just going round and round because you know essentially those quotes are available in so many other places. You've got to do different things. So I do, I do, I do think it helps that being a fan, the fact that you think, well, what are, what are fans talking about at the moment? You know, what are the, what are the big topics? What are the things they're concerned about? You know, what, you know, it's, you know, who would be really interesting to speak to this week? And yeah, I've never, I've never really looked upon it as a, as a negative. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think it makes any difference in terms of the way that, the way that I approach the job because, you know, it's, you know, it, and, and the way that, the way that things have changed over a period of time anyway, you know, it's, 
it's not you know the whole kind of access that journalists get is so is is has changed you know in in the last ten years beyond all recognition in terms of you know when you know I remember, you know it didn't seem too long ago when you know you'd be able to go down to the training ground and catch. 10, 15 minutes with someone after training and you, know, you might have to wait around for a bit, but you know, usually you'd get boxed off yet. It's unthinkable now that you could just rock up at Kirby yeah. and take a seat in the, in the, in the, in the reception and someone eventually one of the players will come and have a chat and you get your interview. It's um, you know, with the, with the, you know, the way that now rights holders get, you know, so much, so so much of the access it, it's you've had to be probably be more creative I think probably now as a as a journalist covering the club um you know and, and another you know and there's been other elements to the job that have changed things as well in terms of you know the the impact of you know data and being able to to use all that you know that data to to to, to write pieces as well and um but I, yeah I, I I I um I've never seen kind of being being a fan and a reporter of the same club as being anything but but positive for for me personally. That's really interesting what you say that because you're a fan, you you've you're really you'd be able to quickly and immediately and sort of from a really good place, you have to tap into what what other Liverpool fans want to read about, but also what is interesting about the club, I guess, because you just sort of feel it that that little bit more, what what the issues are pertinent at that time as well, just because you have that sort of emotional as well as kind of professional association with the club you just sort of really know what matters instinctively because you're a fan yourself yeah I hope so I mean obviously it's not you know it's 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 very difficult to tap into the way you know you're never going to be able to tap into the way that everyone's feeling because people Mm. have completely different takes on the on the same on the same thing and I you know I I, and I still you know see that on a game-by-game basis with you know, you only have to look at the comment sections under under my articles on the athletic. <laughs> you know, you're never, you you're never, you're never, you're never gonna, you know, kind of please everyone. And it's, you know, it, it, you know, quite often you you'll read you know, something, you know, oh yeah, no, this is exactly. You know, I was only thinking about this yesterday myself, and blah blah blah. And then you know, the next one will be what an absolute load of nonsense. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. no, nobody cares about this. Why have you written about this kind of thing? So it's, but yeah, yeah I, I, I think I, I think in general. Um, I think I, I, you know I don't you know because I think also I think people you know, because sometimes people say to well do you not think you're a bit like you know emotionally involved or you know would it be better sometimes if you're writing about it and you were a bit more detached you know maybe you, if you know if you, if you if you weren't really that bothered personally but then I'm thinking well but the people I'm writing for they are emotionally involved and they do you know so surely surely you want to I don't see that as a negative really that I think most people. You know, if you're a, an, an avid Liverpool fan reading a Liverpool piece, then you know I think I think I'd like to think you probably want to see some emotion in there as 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 well as kind of reasoned analysis. Yeah, no, absolutely, and um, I guess you are kind of living your best life at the moment, specifically in the Klopp years. I mean, as a as a fan, I mean, the reason I'm knackered from going to all these games is I made a sort of conscious decision as I said at the start of the season to go to loads of games because I just really want to. As a ma- I've sort of become more of a match guy. I've sort of really cut back how much writing I do for the Guardian. I'm not a staff writer, so my writing sort of responsibilities are quite flexible. They're on me, really, and, I, and I'm sort of more office-based. And, I, you know, I can cover games if I want, and if I don't want to, I don't have to. And I've really sort of abandoned that to, to become a match guy during this period. It is an absolute golden period in the Jurgen Klopp years. And I guess for you, you know, to be covering the club during a sort of bona fide golden period, forming relationships with undisputedly 
one of the club's greatest managers and writing about some of the club's greatest moments. He touched on it, the Barcelona game in, in May 2019, the 4-0. Uh, for me, absolutely, sort of probably in my top, at least top two, top three all-time sort of experiences at Anfield. I still think the Chelsea 2005 semi-final might just pip it for me personally, the Luis Garcia game, but it's certainly up there. And then obviously, as you, as you, as you also mentioned earlier, the, the final in Madrid, um, the Champions League final in Madrid a month later in June 2019. I mean, this must just be, I mean, as I said, you've been reporting on Liverpool for over a decade now. These last four or five years must, I'm just guessing, must be the most sort of rewarding, exciting and, and just most brilliant time to, to be following Liverpool around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just you, you kind of, I think sometimes you, you, because it is, it can be quite relentless in terms of the, uh, you know, the sort of the way it's been this season with the, with the games and competing on all fronts and all the rest of it that, Sometimes I think we, like, we all just need to take a step back as Liverpool fans and just just make sure we fully appreciate, you know, what we're what we're seeing here. Because um, yeah, when you think it doesn't seem too long ago that you talk about you know eighty five points or you know win you league titles and and then suddenly we're in an era now where you know you can get you know mid mid to high nineties and it doesn't even guarantee anything. It's yeah, the the job that Klopp has done has been just you know it's just off the scale in terms of I've, I've never I've never seen anyone connect with people in quite the same way as mm. as he has done and, um, and and I think we see it in so many facets of the club in terms of you know when when do you ever hear any murmurings of discontent at Liverpool any you know you contrast that to the way things have been at United you know with the, the briefing that goes on and the backstabbing and, and all the rest of it and it's like even those on the fringes at Liverpool he has this Nat Klopp of making you feel like you're part of something special, and um, you know it's and, and and you know the staff feel that you know his force of personality is just so great, and um, yeah, to to think to 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 have been there from the start as well. You know, I was at, at White Hart Lane for that goalless draw for his first game in charge, and you know I probably only missed a handful of of games during the Klopp reign since. Um, and just to see that kind of influence grow and, you know, the, the job he's done as well, which you know, I think I don't think it gets emphasised enough the way he's done it whilst operating within a business model where, you know, you you, know, you have to live within your means. And, you know, how, how boring would English football have been without Klopp's Liverpool in the last four or five years? It would have just been, you know, like like PSG in France, essentially, mm. it was, or Bayern Munich in Germany, because, you know, City wouldn't really have had any you know, proper, proper opposition at the top end of the league. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's just really, really exciting to, to write about. It was, it was strange being there. I was obviously at one of the lucky few at Anfield when they won, or sorry, when they lifted the Premier League trophy in 2020. And that was, that was obviously pretty surreal kind of, you know, you're thinking I've waited so, so long to see this and to, you know, it's, and obviously, you know, in, in all the possible scenarios that went through our heads over the course of those 30 years, I don't think anyone thought it would happen in front of an empty an empty Anfield with Jordan Henderson on the makeshift plinth in the cop. It was slightly, you know, it, that was bittersweet in a way, really, like not not being able to be part and, and, you know, all the good people I know that would have loved to have been there. And so to have been denied that, I think... I think that's what adds an extra edge to this this title race this season. The fact that you know it would mean that much more if they could win it again, you know, and 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 have those shared experiences with 
the fans, you know, with a, you know, can you imagine what Anfield would be like? It, you know, it's, you know, I couldn't help but gaze around the place that night and just think that's, it's quite sad, really. It shouldn't have been, you know, it, of course it was the best that could have possibly happened in the, the circumstance of the pandemic, but it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been like that. Well, there's one more to come and it's a, a somewhat a gingerly made climb for Jordan Henderson, the wounded hero, signed by Kenny Dalglish. Frustrated at coming second in 2014 and last season. Captain Sensible. A captain of industry on the football field. Well, European champions, world club champions in very recent memory. But after 30 years, this might just be the biggest lift for Liverpool. Back on top in England. Hoping there's a few a few more big chapters in the in in the Klopp's Liverpool story still to be written because um, yeah you certainly look at what he's built there and you, and you just think you know before we know it you know it, Klopp won't be around anymore mm. and um, it will be a period I think when you know we all look back and go wow do you know what I don't think we we quite appreciated just how good we had it for for so long. Yeah, just going back to that night, the, the Chelsea game when 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 the team lifted the trophy. I'm just curious because I, 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 yeah, bittersweet is a great way to put it. I mean, I'm obviously really proud of what that team achieved that season, and you know, we we were we did win the league that year. And that night, I I watched the game on telly with a couple of mates, and we had a couple of beers. It was a good night. But I, I don't know. The more the time has passed, the more I sort of look back with huge my, my sort of levels of regret about that season and sadness kind of grow, and I sort of. I find it really hard to connect with that season. I just feel very, very sad when I think about the fact that we weren't in the ground when, when Jordan Henderson lifted the trophy and we were denied that. I just feel really sad about it as a Liverpool fan. Like yourself, we'd waited so long to see us win the league. Being in the ground that night, um, did it help in a way? Um, did, you, did you feel that connection that those of us who weren't in the ground didn't have? Did, do you just feel a bit better about that season than someone like myself does? No, do you know what? Probably don't actually because... I don't know, it's strange. I mean, on the one hand, it was like, wow, this is like, you know, I didn't, what what an odd situation to be in when you think, you know, you've wanted this moment for so long and then, you know, you're one of only, I don't know, I think, because they even, even that day of the trophy lift, there was all that stuff about could the players' families attend or mm. not and Public Health England had to get involved and the rest of it. So it, I think maybe there was 300 people in the ground or whatever and you think, wow, you know, so on the one hand, you think this is an absolute privilege, but then you know, it, it was there was a fair bit of sadness as well, really, to think that you know because when, when I think about my best ever moments at Anfield, it, it's that it's that noise and that emotion that that sends that tingle down your spine, and you know, despite the, the music being blared out and the fireworks and everything, you can't you can't create that when 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 it's not when it's not there and i think they made the best of what they could have done at that time but yeah 
like sadness really and even even the behind closed doors football in general you know the number of like friends and family that would say to me oh you're so lucky the fact you still get to go to the games and I felt quite ungrateful really because I was like well you know I don't really feel very lucky because watching football in empty stadiums is absolutely soulless you know it's it's it it just you know I'd, I'd say probably probably for you know a few weeks after, you know, after football resumed, it was like, yes, football's back and I get to go. And and then it was like, actually, yeah, actually everything that I really love about going in the game, you know, the, you know, was, you know, has gone. It's been like taken away. And um, yeah, I don't think it was a massive shock that Liverpool suffered probably more than anyone behind closed doors because, you know, it's such an emotional brand of football they play. Klopp himself is so emotional that, you know, and I think having that ripped away, you know, where obviously, you know, the injuries played their part as well. But um, yeah, that definitely hurt them. And, I, and again, I think that's another reason why it makes you makes you appreciate even more what what we're seeing this season. Yeah, I've got to say that last season, the, the COVID season, the 20, the 2020, 2021 season, my least favourite football season of all time. Yes. And, you know, yeah. that, that includes like the Hodgson season and, and some of the other ones in the 90s, which were very good early 90s specifically. I just absolutely hated that season. I, just, I, I didn't go to any games, even as a journalist, but it was soulless just watching it from TV as well. I found it, yeah. found it absolutely appalling. And that sort of all actually links on to quite nicely what I wanted to ask you next, next, which is I've seen a few pictures of that you've posted on Twitter of you being at a couple of recent games, I think with, with your kids. Uh, I don't know if both of you. You've got two, haven't you? Holly and Max, is that right? Yeah, Again, that's right, yeah. yeah. I don't know if it was both of them. I can't quite remember. But you're in the stands with them or one of them. I think Cardiff maybe in the FA Cup. Um, I mean, is that partly them just wanting to go to the games um, as, as match goes and you taking them? And, and, how, and also, though, is it part of you perhaps maybe reconnecting with the way you used to watch Liverpool as well, watching it from the stand as opposed to the press box? Yeah, yeah, I think a bit of a bit of all of that really, and also the fact that kind of for for so long it was it was kind of like it was, I was just in that mindset of you know I can't miss a game, I can't miss a game, you know, regardless of where it is, I'll be there, you know, I'll, I'll fit everything else around it, and then I think, and then over time, with you know, there's three of us who cover Liverpool for the Athletic, and myself, Simon Hughes, and Kiever O'Neill, and and. Um, and I think just by the nature of what we do, quite often, you know, the match pieces kind of probably complement the longer reads as opposed to being the kind of things that that people will always, you know, you know, kind of renew subscriptions for and or sign up for. So it was I, I was just told, look, you know, it's great that you want to be absolutely everywhere all the time, but you don't you don't have to. And, and in fact, you know, it might be, you know, it might be helpful for you to spend a, a full week working on other stuff and having the weekend off to to do other to do other things and it was you know that that kind of coincided with Max who's nine saying you know you know I, you know you, you can't ever take me can you dad because you're working and it was like well actually I probably I probably can so it's been yeah it's been great this season I think we've done I think we've done three games so far this season t- together and um yeah it, you know it was just a real just a real buzz I took you know the first one we went to actually was was Leicester in the League Cup. Um, it was what just, a night that was! That yeah, was, yeah. Just, no, I didn't didn't think it was going to be as <laughs> special as it was, and it was yeah. yeah. Not surprisingly, he came back from that one and was like, "Can I go every week now?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, "Well, I'll do my best, you know." And we've got other friends that you can go with at times. I said, "But I do have to warn you that's that's not that's <laughs> not representative of of every single yeah. you know you don't you don't quite often you don't often see six goals and a and a penalty shootout." Um, yeah. 
but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at the back of the cop for the the Cardiff the Cardiff game in the FA Cup, and um, yeah, got a few f- funny looks off people as if to say, I don't think you should be here. Shouldn't you be on you know the other side of the ground around there? But um, but yeah, it's it's been it's been nice. It's been nice to actually have the chance to do that because yeah, probably probably before this season, it well probably probably going back to. I think probably the when I went as a fan before it was probably the 2007 Champions League semi-final against Chelsea I think when um, when Daniel Agger scored was that yeah, the, yeah. The yeah, that's yeah. the one yeah yeah the free kick uh, the sort of set the free kick routine yeah yeah I mean that was something I wanted to ask you James I mean are you as someone who you know who, who fell in love with the club and wanted to go to Anfield and and and, and in that three year period when you were at university watching them. Uh, regularly with you know um, with your mate Pete as well. You've then had sort of a decade or so of, of sitting in the press box and watching them. Are you is there is there any part of you, especially now with Max wanting to go as well? Is there a part of you that wants to go back to your sort of roots in a way of watching it from the stands at all? I mean, all I can say is it's brilliant in there. Honestly, mate, you know, you, it is just brilliant watching Liverpool as a fan. I'm sure it's brilliant writing about them, and you know you've you've created this incredible legacy. When you um, you're getting it now, but rightly so. But when you when you retire as well, you'll get uh, you know you'll have garlands thrown over your shoulders, and uh, you know your the words you've written will be passed down from the generations. You know you've left an absolute fantastic legacy as a as a journalist, but you are a fan as well. And I just kind of I just wonder is is there a part of you that goes I just want to, I just want to be in a stand. I want to sing the Diogo Jota song, and I want to have a bevy before the game and a bevy afterwards, and and just reconnect with that part of your life again. Yeah, 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 there are, there is definitely, yeah, yeah, and I think I think hopefully now going forward I'll be able to have a decent a decent balance where now I'm kind of like now in the mindset of yeah, do you know what it's it it you know if if um if I don't do you know one game a month as in terms of report you know reporting and I I spend that one game you know in in the cop or in the main stand with 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 my little boy then you know that's that's hopefully a decent decent balance to be to be struck. So um, yeah, I am looking. You know, hopefully at some point, probably probably if I can if I can stay in an employment up to up to retirement age, then I I, I look forward to spending my retirement <laughs> the um, following following Liverpool round and uh, you know, probably less less stress in terms of trying to meet deadlines and and hopefully more beer. Yeah, when Harvey Elliott's our manager. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, James James Milner's down to the last year of his contract. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just give him one more year. Just one more year. He's really valuable <laughs> in the dressing room. Um, James, you've been absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Before I let you go, get back to your day. I'm just going to do the usual couple of things we do at the end of this. Um, at the end of every episode of this podcast, the first thing is your all-time eleven. So for anyone who's never listened to this uh, podcast before, I always ask my guests to give me an all-time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen during their team uh, time supporting their team. James has kindly provided an all-time Liverpool 11 based on the best players he's seen for the club. Um, it's in a 4-2-3-1 formation. I'll go through it and then we'll have a little chat about it. So your goalkeeper is Alison Becker. Your back four is Trent Alexander-Arnold, Jamie Carragher, Virgil van Dijk and Andy Robertson. You've got two in midfield, Steven Gerrard and Steven Manaman. You've then got a, a trio behind the main striker off Mo Salah, Robbie Fowler and John Barnes. And your striker is Luis Suarez. So um, without making this about me again, um, I've got to say that you've got seven players that I've got in my uh, all-time Liverpool eleven as well. You've got, which is Alisson, Trent, Alexander-Arnold, Carragher, Robertson, 
Gerard Fowler and Suarez. I haven't got Van Dyke yet because I can't let go of Sammy Hoopier just yeah, I just adore the guy too. <laughs> Virgil is obviously better than him and he will eventually get into his all time eleven. But um but I've just got to hold on to Sammy Hoopier a bit longer because I because I absolutely adore him. Um but I think what's interesting as well is you've got so many players like like in my, I've got Fabino in my all time eleven, for instance. There's just You've got so many players from the Klopp here, and I think that really sort of um, you've got also, you've got you got you got Allison, Trent, um, Robertson, uh, and Salah as well. Yeah, in mine, I've got I've got Fabinho as well. I just think it shows what just that sort of highlights, doesn't it? What a golden period this is for for Liverpool fans. We are seeing some of the best players we've ever seen in this in this in this iteration of Liverpool. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a good. I think you could make a very strong case for Fabinho deserving to be in there. I think I. I I was just desperate to shoehorn McManaman into my team somewhere, and I was thinking, I can't, I can't leave out John Barnes or Salah on the wing, and I'm, I'm definitely not leaving out Robbie Fowler or no. Suarez. But it was like, I'm going to have to. I think Gerard's doing a fair bit of the heavy lifting. <laughs> I was so. going to say, I don't think he's making but, any tackles in that midfield. Yeah, it's going to have to be Stevie. Isn't it? Yeah. I can't. I, I, yeah, I'd have to break the news to Stevie gently that he's not going to be able to bomb forward much. And um, but uh, but yeah, you're right. It was yeah when you when you actually go through it. It, but and, and then and then sometimes you think oh well you know have they I think you know some, then then you sometimes think well actually some, like with Van Dyke you think well has he has he been around long enough like in terms of longevity and, and all the rest of it yet to be classed as in that kind of your all time eleven but then you actually look at what these this group of players have achieved it's like you know certainly you know for people like me and you that you know were, were pretty young back in kind of like the early nineties when when Liverpool would, you know, we're essentially falling, falling from their position as superiority in English football. It's like, well, well, yeah, quite rightly, this there's a lot of the current crop that would get in an all-time yeah. eleven over the last thirty odd years because they've they've achieved things that that other Liverpool teams, you know, haven't haven't come close to doing during that that period. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it wasn't, yeah, it's, it's it, it wasn't the easiest trying to trying to trying to shoehorn. That it them the, the, you know get it down to a to an eleven, but um, yeah, I still if Suarez. I, I had to have Suarez. I mean, I think no matter what you you know, it's, he did some pretty distasteful things on football pitches that that let himself down and let the club down and all the people that had supported him. But in, in terms of like talent, you know, it's, I, I I still think you know, he's in terms of wow moments. In terms of thinking, what on earth have we just seen there? You know, he he was just on an, an absolute another level. Yeah, I mean, he's I've, I've, I I always say he's the most talented player I've ever seen play for Liverpool. Not necessarily the most impactful or important or, or anything like that, but the most talented. And um, I always say one of the best ways I enjoyed Luis Suarez's time at Liverpool was actually through through Twitter and through the tweets from like li- likes of yourself. One story I always tell is that I was um, in October 2013. I was going to Sheffield to cover a Kell Brook fight, and we were playing West Brom that day. And I was on the train when we kicked off. It was a 3 p.m. kickoff. So I had to follow it on Twitter as I was getting the train up to Sheffield. And I remember just seeing tweets from like yourself and Neil Jones and others saying, Luis Suarez has scored with a header from outside the box. <laughs> and you're thinking, that can't be right. They've, they've not judged that right. They've, they've, not, they've, they've made a mistake there. And then I watched match of the day that evening. Like, fucking hell, he has scored with a header from outside the box. He was just absolutely unreal. Um, speaking of Suarez, in your team, the way you sent it to me, you had Robbie Fowler behind Luis Suarez. Is that, is that right? That seems... Like the wrong way around, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that might. I, I think it'd be fluid. I think it would definitely be. <laughs> they could, it would be interchangeable. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably. 
yeah, I don't think Robbie would be very happy with that if I wrote that up on the board, would he? I think. Um, yeah, I might adjust I think, that for him. I'll put them next to each other when I uh, sort yeah, of draw up. Yeah, 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 no, I think, I think, yeah, that that's uh, that's a mistake. I think definitely, definitely, Robbie is the most advanced of my uh, my yeah, attacking yeah. four. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's a very good team. Um, Oh, I did want to ask you one other question about the team, actually. Um, I'm curious, given how well you've got to know Liverpool players in, in your job, how much is this team shaped by, as I said, by the fact you've got to know players away from the pitch? I mean, have you left anyone out that you would have put in because actually they're a bit of a dickhead? You don't have to say who the player is. <laughs> um, no, no, I don't think so, actually. No, I mean, I think, I, I think probably left out you know, not so much in terms, but you think, you know, someone like Coutinho probably would have been part of the conversation, but for, you know, I think probably influenced by the way his antics before he left, yeah. um, you know, similar with, you know, with, with Torres. And so I think sometimes Torres's time at Liverpool, it's easy to forget just how absolutely off the scale he was in those, in those early years at Liverpool. Um, but no, in fact, probably the, the opposite would be, I felt bad about probably not finding room for Jordan Henderson. Yeah, yeah. Um, and having got to know Jordan over the last ten years, so it's he, you know he's such an incredible fella that you know is just you know and, and, and it still amazes me to this day that there seems to be social media discussions over whether over whether he's good enough and all the rest of it. It's like you know what more do you need to see in terms of what he has done for this club in the last ten years, the things he's won. The influence that he has in the dressing room, he's a, you know an inspirational leader and and also you know an, an immensely talented um, midfielder. So um, yeah, if I didn't if I didn't have to, I just but I just McManaman for me, I, I think again you know simply I think I think he he's another player that probably doesn't get the praise that he fully deserves in terms of how good. How good he was because because of the way that things went with with leave you know leaving on a Bosman to yeah. to real to Real Madrid and you know, and I think obviously like these days it happens so often doesn't it but it was still it was so new then it was like well that's this can't be right you know why yeah. are you doing well, that? I, I think he was the first Bosman out of England I've had this com- I've had the McManaman conversation with mates like he is one of the most probably arguably the most underappreciated player in Liverpool's history I think he was essentially our best player during the 90s yeah our man in the match in the two cup finals we won that decade the 92 cup final 95 Coca-Cola cup final he was absolutely brilliant yeah. and it just seems to be very little love for him and I do think the Bosman going on a Bosman you know it really stung our sort of collective pride and I said now it's kind of it wouldn't be looked upon too much but I think it was I think it was literally the first in English football and so yeah it was kind of really impactful I think I, I totally agree with you. I think McManaman deserves a lot more love and respect yeah 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 and yeah I'd say Henderson and Fabino were probably the two most unfortunate I think in terms of what I was thinking who do I who do I um who's going to have to miss out here. Um, I, I, I agree with you on Hippier in terms of, you know, what, what an absolute legend he was and probably pound for pound, you know, he'd, he'd have to be in a conversation in terms of the best buys in Liverpool's history. Mm, but yeah. I, yeah, I just think, I think with Van, with Van Dyke for just in terms of a, a signing who's transformed Liverpool more than anyone else, I just, I, I don't think you know, probably Allison would come second to him, but I think Van Dyke's in a class of his own with that one. Yeah, now I've got Hippie and Carragher as my centre backs, but I, you know I fully accept Van Dyke will replace Hippie uh, sooner rather than later. 
And Fabinho's in the midfield with Gerard and Xabi Alonso for anyone who cares. And then I've got Mane, Fowler and Suarez as my as my three. So yeah, anyone jaws dropped at the moment at the, at the absence of Mo Salah. I love Mo Salah, but he doesn't quite make it because I've just got to have Sadio Mane and I've got to have Luis Suarez. And like you, again, being of the age that we are, I've just got to have Robbie Fowler. He's absolutely nailed on. He's 100% that team. Um, James, you've been absolutely brilliant. It's been an absolute treat talking to you. I'm going to ask you then the final question before I let you get off. It's the usual final question that I ask on this podcast. If you go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting stroke covering Liverpool up to now, and it can be absolutely anything. It could be um, a goal, a match, a transfer, very specific moment in a game or, or, or a personal experience or personal moment, absolutely anything you want, what would you choose? <laughs> it would it would definitely be accepting that ticket for Istanbul. Really? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That, yeah. that would that yeah that more than anything else because um, yeah it it still stings me when that when that anniversary comes around like I said before it does the um, the fact that we've won we've won the biggest prizes in the in the years since and I've been fortunate enough to be there then that helps but it does yeah it does still sting when the when the anniversary comes round and the thing, the thing of, yeah, if I could go back, um, I'd have, uh, I'd have said yes and suffered the, the consequences rather than, rather than miss out on that, that historic evening. Yeah. I don't want to rub it in, but I was there and it was a brilliant <laughs> night, James. You, you missed out on a fantastic night, uh, but you've been there for most of the others ever since. So I think that's, that's, that's worked out pretty well for you. Um, James Pierce, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Cheers, Sasha.